Hello and welcome to today's edition of Enjoying the Bible. I'm Matt Ellis and I truly hope that as we continue to meet together, not only uh, for this podcast, but as we interact on the Facebook group with questions and comments and clarifications, um, I hope that what we experience is a growing knowledge and a growing love for God's Word that interprets into an application of God's Word. Uh, a desire to put it into practice in the power of God's Holy Spirit. So I hope and pray that this is a beneficial um, service to you as we go through the Bible together. Uh, today is January the 3rd, so today's Bible reading is Genesis 7 through 9 and Matthew 3. That's Genesis 7 through 9 and Matthew chapter 3. I hope you're ready. Let's get going. Okay, so as we look at Genesis 7, we need to briefly remind ourselves that the previous chapter, in Genesis chapter 6, uh, God had uh, expressed his desire to destroy all of mankind because their hard attitudes were constantly wicked. So he had told Noah to build an ark, gave some dimensions, specific dimensions, and then told him to take two of every living creature inside the ark with him. Not only was he to take Noah to take his wife, their three sons, and their three wives, but he was also to take two of every living creature. So when we get to Genesis chapter 7, God actually tells Noah, because the ark is now built, God tells Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. So it was a deplorable situation. Some 1,100 years or so after God created Adam and Eve, it had devolved into nothing but utter wickedness. And only Noah and his immediate family were seen to be righteous before God. So God put them into the ark and put them in pairs, husband-wife, four husband-wife pairs, so that as they exited the ark, they would be able to have children and be able to fill the earth again. But we also see in verses 2 through 5 that now God's a little bit more specific in the fact that they weren't just to take two of every living creature, but of the clean animals, they were to take seven pairs. Not just a pair, but seven pairs. And the reason for that being is that as soon as they got off the ark, we realized that Noah took some of the clean animals, some of all of the clean animals, and sacrificed them. And so that was the reason for the extras. Uh, there would be sacrifice, an act of worship to God, an Old Testament act of worship to God. Um, in verses 6 through the remainder of the chapter, we see that Noah and all of the animals entered the ark. Knowing all the animals. Now one of the things that comes up periodically in a discussion of the ark is were there dinosaurs before the ark? Well I believe the fossil record testifies to the fact that yes there were dinosaurs, massive animals pre-flood, pre-flood. But the question sometimes comes up, well how, how were you able to get them on the ark? Well, the assumption is is that uh, as Noah was to take two of every kind onto the ark, seven of clean, seven pair of clean animals. Well, the assumption is is that the animals that went on were fully grown, fully matured, that they were as big as they could get. And I think that's erroneous because nowhere in the biblical record does God command that only fully grown adult animals were to enter the ark. 
it very well could be that uh, many of these animals, maybe most or all of the animals, were very young and very small. Therefore, they were easily able to fit on the massive ark that God had Noah build. And so we read also that the flood came in chapter 7. The flood came and wiped out everything. Everything except, according to verse 23, everything except life that was in the water. And one other point I want to bring out is in chapter 7, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 11. I think this points back to something that I mentioned previously. I think it points back to the second day of creation. On the second day of creation, God separated the water um, that was on the earth from the water that was above the earth. And I don't think we're talking about clouds there. I think we're talking about a water canopy so that there was water on the earth settling into, you know, over the earth. And then eventually the next day would be forming seas and oceans and lakes and rivers and things like that. But the separation that happened on day two was the water that was on the earth from the water, the massive amount of water that was above the earth. I think that that is the reason why we see the age of people so, I mean, we see people growing so old before the flood. In the thousand years or so before the flood, we see in Genesis 5, people in that chapter were growing to six, seven, eight, nine hundred years old. How in the world was that happening? And then when the flood happens, we observe that people are dying much, much, much younger. It seems as if something happened in the flood that caused mankind's lifespan to drastically decrease. I think it was the water canopy. I think that the water canopy on day two that was separated from the water on the earth and the water above the earth, I think that that protected mankind from uh, the sun's dangerous radiation, sun rays, and things like that. It may have been that life on the earth would have been tropical and just wonderful for human life to flourish and exist for hundreds and hundreds of years, and maybe even for reptiles to grow into dinosaur size. But what we see in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, it says this, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, here it is, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. So this is the water that was on the earth. Day two, water above the earth, water on the earth. It says that the vast watery depths burst open. And so it's not like the, the water just kind of rose on the earth. There was water under the earth that just exploded out. I think that there is a biblical case for Pangea. If you look at how um, you know, the continents, how North America and South America, if it were moved to the east, would fit nicely into Europe and fit into Africa. I think that there's, a, if there's a biblical, uh, if there's biblical credibility for that, I think that probably happens in Genesis chapter 7 when the water depths burst open. I think that this was a ripping and tearing and cataclysmic moving of tectonic plates and everything else. So the water burst open. But verse 11 also says the floodgates of the sky were opened. So when God on day two separated the, the massive amount of water that was above the earth, I think as it were, God took a pen and popped it and all of that massive water came 
crashing down onto the earth. And so this was a massive torrential flood. This wasn't just a big bad storm. This was a worldwide cataclysmic event that we read about in Genesis chapter 7. All right, so now that we're looking at Genesis chapter 8, there's the second word in my translation, probably in yours as well, is one that we need to reflect on. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 says, God remembered Noah. Now, um, I believe it was yesterday we talked about anthropopathisms. We talked about how God makes himself understandable to us by ascribing to himself emotions that we feel just so that we can kind of get an idea of the direction that, that maybe he's feeling or experiencing, but honestly, God does not feel emotions like we do. He is emotional, but he is so much higher than us. And so when emotions are ascribed to God, we need to understand that as God experiences those things, it is not exactly the way that we experience it. And so when we think of remembered in Genesis chapter 8 verse 1, God remembered Noah, well, if I say, hey, I remembered something, what that implies is, I've got a bad memory. <laughs> you know, I forgot something and then I remembered it. And if we're not careful, we'll ascribe that to God and that is not true. Whenever here's a here's a key, you need to remember this. Whenever you see that and God remembered, it doesn't mean that God just thought, "Oh my goodness, I forgot. Now I remembered." That's not it. When God remembers, all that is saying is God is focusing his attention on something and he's about to do something pretty cool. So when you see God remembered Noah, if, if you think when God, when it says God remembers, he's about to do something pretty amazing, you would be right. Because God, when it says he remembered Noah, he didn't forget about Noah, of course. God knew exactly what was going on. What this means is God's attention is now on Noah. He's about to do something pretty incredible. He's going to bring this cataclysmic flood to an end, and he's going to call Noah and everyone out of the ark. So roughly, uh, well, actually 150 days into this, the waters stopped and the waters were decreasing on the earth. The flood stopped and all of the watery depths stopped gushing and uh, so the the waters begin to decrease. Um, in verse 4 we see that five months after the flood started the ark rested on Mount Ararat and if our geography if our geography serves us well that is in present-day Turkey. Uh, there have been uh, individuals that have said that they have been on that mountain and they that they have discovered various things um, some of that is suspect, but most certainly we believe the biblical text, whether anyone is legitimately founded or not, that the ark is there um, on Mount Ararat. Um, we also read in this text that Noah sent out birds uh, and to judge about the water that had dissipated off the earth. Apparently he wasn't able to get a good view of, of the land down below, and so uh, he sent out birds, and finally when one did not come back, he realized that uh, they could now begin to prepare to get out of the ark. 
In verses 15 through 19, uh, we see that God called Noah and his family and the animals off of the ark. And so the ark had served its purpose, and God was now calling them out of the ark. And then, as we come to the end of chapter 8, in verses 20 and 22, God makes it very clear to Noah that he's not going to do this again. He's not going to destroy. Now, he's not saying that he's not going to destroy the earth. He's not going to do it in this way. And so the flood happened one time. It's never going to happen again. God promised that he's never going to flood the earth and destroy mankind again. All right, so Genesis chapter 9. Uh, when you look at verse 1, um, as we have been reading through the chapters, it's God repeating himself. Listen to chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, here it is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, of course it does. It's uh, actually a quotation. It's actually a restatement of Genesis 1:28. This is the message that God gave Adam and Eve. This is also the message that God gave Noah and his descendants. That in order for uh, there to be uh, good stewardship over the earth and for things not to get out of control, um, humanity had to oversee this. Humanity had to oversee this to be good stewards of God cre God's creation. And so God gave them the command, uh, have babies, fill the earth, fill the earth. And uh, so then we see in verse 3 that uh, God is now saying, hey, all of the animals, um, you know, you can eat anything. Uh, there's no clean or unclean, essentially. You can eat anything. But when you get to verse 5 and 6, you realize that God sets mankind apart from animals. In verse 3, God says, Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. But when you get to verse 5, it says, If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. And so we see in Genesis 9 that there is no evolution evolution would teach that we are of little value more than animal life because we evolved from them and so therefore we have not necessarily any intrinsic value for being human but yet we see in Genesis 9 that God clearly distinguished between animals and humanity that you can eat animals, you can eat them for food. Now clearly, a good stewardship over animals and over vegetation, over the earth, means that there is no reckless killing. There is no killing for sport without uh, it intending to be for food or clothing with the skins. But, uh, but as good stewards, careful stewards over creation, they were free to eat any of the animals. But if they took a human life, that's different because human life according to the book of Genesis is very different and very set apart from animal life. Why? Because of what we read in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. Because God made humans in his image. Animals do not bear the image of God. All that that means or whatever that means, animals are not made in the image of God. And even though now we are made in the image of Adam, it is still a flawed image 
of God. It's still, there's still the image of God implanted in each of us, saved and lost alike. It doesn't matter what color. It doesn't matter what culture. It doesn't matter what religion. It doesn't matter what uh, sin preference you have. Everyone has intrinsic value because we are created in the image of God. Yes, we're sinners, and we are in the image of Adam, but we still bear the fingerprints of our Creator. And so human life is of much greater value than animal life. We take care of animals. We care for them. We're good stewards of them. But we see in Genesis 9 that human life is much more important than animal life. It would seem that in our culture and in our day, that line is getting blurred. It is not blurry in Scripture. Now, whenever we look at uh, verses 8 through 17, we realize that God gives the rainbow. It, uh, there may have never been a rainbow before. We understand that rainbows show up and they're refracted light, and we understand that it's the sunlight and um, you know rain that's coming down. And if you're at the right angle, then you can see a rainbow. And since there was no rain before the flood... Um, then they may have never seen a rainbow before. And so God gave the rainbow in chapter 9, verses 8 through 17, as a sign, as a picture, so that every time it was raining and they looked into the sky and they saw a rainbow, it was a clear reminder that we serve while He is a God of justice and will punish sin. He's also a God of grace. And He's also a God of covenant. And when He promises never to flood the earth again, we take Him at His word. The rainbow is a sign of that. As chapter 9 comes to an end, we look at verses 18 through 29, uh, we see that Noah uh, got himself drunk. You know, he grew a vineyard and uh, then... You know, he got himself uh, drunk, and he went into a tent, and apparently inside of that tent he was exposed. It may have been a very hot day, and so he took his clothes off inside of his tent just because they had no fans, of course. Of course, no air conditioners. Um, but his son, Ham, went in, and we don't know what happened, um, but Noah becomes infuriated. I think that... I don't think anything in this narrative leads us to believe that there was anything sexual that happened inside of that tent. I think what just happened is Ham went in, saw his father exposed, and went out and mocked his father to his brothers, to Ham and Japheth, uh, to Shem and Japheth, and essentially dishonored his dad in doing so. And so uh, his brothers took a blanket, walked in backwards so they did not see their father naked, and covered their father, respecting him and his privacy. And so when Noah woke up and heard what Ham had done, whatever that was, and I think it was just mocking him and gawking and going out and then making fun of him to his brothers, um, Noah pronounced a curse, not on Ham, but on Canaan. Now, I'm, I'm telling you that the reason why I'm making a distinction is because, one, it's, it's what's written in Scripture. It doesn't say that Ham is cursed. If you look at verse 24, when Noah woke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. I'm telling you that there has been within the Christian community racism, blatant 
racism that has looked at this passage and has said that, ah, Ham's people went to Africa and they are cursed and therefore people have justified Christians, supposed Christians have justified racism and they've gone to this text. I want you to know that there's a lot that people believe that is not biblical. There's a lot that people believe that's in the Bible that is not in the Bible. It does not say that Ham was cursed. It says his son Canaan was cursed. Verse 25 again, he said Canaan is cursed. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. And so we see that Canaan was the one. Now, where did Canaan settle? <laughs> if you're familiar with Old Testament history, you realize that the Canaanites did not go to Africa. The Canaanites were those who settled in the land, in the promised land. They were the ones who were engaged in child sacrifice and even demonic activity. They were the ones who inhabited the promised land and they were the ones that when God led through Moses and then ultimately Joshua to the, led the Israelites in to conquer the promised land, they were conquering the Canaanites. This is the people that received a curse. Their punishment ultimately was met when God took the promised people, the Israelites, into Canaan and conquered the Canaanites. And so I just want us to be clear on this. It was not Ham that was cursed. There is racism that, that Christians have pointed to Scripture. Scripture does not allow for such a thing as that. We just need to read our Bible and constantly be clarifying people on what is not true. All right, so the final chapter that we're going to look at for today is Matthew chapter 3, and it is the beginning, or at least it's where we pick up um, John the Baptist ministry and also the beginning of Jesus' ministry, or at least the initiation of Jesus to begin his ministry. Um, I just want to point out a few things here. The chapter is pretty self-explanatory, but I do want to point out in verses 1 through 3, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, that the first thing that we are told that came out of John the Baptist's mouth was verse 2, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the first thing we're told that John the Baptist said. He may have said other things, but that's what we are the first thing we are told that he said. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if you've got your Bible open and you wanted to flip over to the very next chapter, the very first thing that we hear come out of Jesus' mouth as he formally began his ministry is Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Now, listen to this. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. They had the same exact message. What's repent? It means stop what you were doing that is in violation of God's command and turn around, turn to God, turn to obedience. And not just repent, but because the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does that mean? That means the king has shown up. That means Jesus, the king, has shown up. And friend, let me tell you that if you are saved, right now you are in the kingdom. Now, we're still here on earth, but Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth. You are in the kingdom. What does that mean? That means that you do not belong to yourself anymore, that you serve King Jesus. If you are saved, you serve King Jesus. 
What do we do as we serve King Jesus? We obey him, <laughs> and we enjoy the blessings of being a part of his kingdom. We enjoy the, the beauty that, of the story that God has written so that not only are we subjects of the kingdom, but the king is our elder brother. Jesus is our elder brother, and he has told us to call upon the God of all creation in the same way that he has called upon him, our Father. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Repent, turn from your sin, turn to obedience because Jesus has shown up. Submit to his kingdom. Enjoy him in this life and also in the life to come. Now, I also want you to realize one, uh, two other things. One is that uh, the Pharisees came to Jesus, came to John the Baptist as he was baptizing. And uh, they came and they wanted to be baptized. And John, he was fearless. And in verse 7, he looked at them in front of everybody and said, Brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Coming wrath? God's wrath. God's judgment is coming. We need to repent to, to, to move away from God's wrath and move into God's favor by trusting in Jesus. But he said, who warned you of this? You know, what's your motive for wanting to be baptized? And then he says this in verse 8, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. Do you know what John the Baptist is saying? He is saying, I am not willing to baptize you. Why? Because you are not demonstrating that you have truly repented. You know, uh, they, it's easy to say that I have repented. It's quite another to live a life of brokenness over sin and obedience to the Lord. And so John was clearly unwilling to baptize the Pharisees. He said, you show me a changed life. You show me humility toward God. You show me repentance toward God. You show me where you are obeying him and your life is about him. And then we'll talk about baptism. So he didn't baptize the Pharisees. He didn't believe that their lives had truly been changed. And in fact, that's I mean, baptism is just a picture. It is just a picture of an internal change. Baptism does nothing. It simply shows what's already happened inside of us. And since salvation, since repentance had not happened in the hearts of these Pharisees, John was unwilling to help them paint a picture to show that something had happened that, that had not. Now, toward the end of the chapter, uh, we see Jesus coming to be baptized. And John now is unwilling to baptize Jesus. <laughs> he said, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you've come to me? John recognized that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He recognized that he was the sinless one. He realized Jesus you don't need to repent. Why in the world would I baptize you? I need to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. And yet Jesus says in verse 15, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. What was Jesus saying and why did he need to be baptized? Because if baptism shows a repentance of sin, then why was Jesus baptized if he had never sinned? He said that, go on, John, let's go on and do it because it's important for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's important for us to do the right thing. Well, why was it the right thing for Jesus to be baptized? Let me give you two reasons. One is because Jesus, being baptized, was associating with sinners. 
As Jesus was baptized, he, even though he was not a sinner, never having sinned once, never in his whole life, even up until the point that he ascended into heaven in Acts 1, not sinning one single time, but when he was baptized with sinners, he was associating with sinners. He was demonstrating that he was a friend of sinners. And so one of the reasons he was baptized is he was to associate with those that desperately needed to be forgiven. But I think another powerful reason is, is that John's baptism was a little bit different from the New Testament baptism of the early of, of the church. The, the baptism of the early church wasn't simply, wasn't merely a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of repentance and faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when someone was baptized, they would be put into the water. Baptizo means fully immerse. And so they would be baptized in the water and they would show as they went into the water that they had already died to themselves. They had turned their back on them. Jesus said, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And so baptism shows that someone who has already been saved has in being saved died to themselves and associated with Christ's death. They've been crucified with Christ. And yet when they come back out of the water, it shows that they are a new creation. There's nothing that happens with that water. It is a beautiful picture of the fact that when that person was saved, they died to themselves, and Jesus has given them a new birth, a new birth. They are born anew. They, just as Jesus came out of the grave, we who are saved are new creations. Old things passed away, all things become new. The water baptism just pictures that. And what ultimately does that? What do we place our trust in? It's Jesus, and particularly there on the cross. That cross is what New Testament church baptism pictures. The cross where Jesus died, was buried, and then rose again. When we are saved, we are baptized. We are put in the water, and then we come out of that water to show our identification with Jesus. It's the cross that baptism points to. And so when Jesus was being baptized by John, he was committing himself to the picture of what that baptism was pointing to. When he was baptized to initiate his ministry, he was committing to the cross. That's why he said, John, go ahead and baptize me. You may not understand it, John. That's okay. This is the way to fulfill all righteousness. Let's go ahead and you baptize me. I want to associate with those that I'm going to die for, and I want to give this a powerful, I want to give this picture a powerful meaning, an even more powerful meaning, much more than just repentance. I want it to picture the death, burial, and resurrection of anyone who will place their trust in me that they die to themselves, they die to sin, and they are raised to walk in newness of life. And so that's why, one of the many reasons why Jesus had, had to be baptized. I'm looking forward to some of the comments that you may have on the fa in the Facebook group page as we interact with uh, this chapter online. Hope to see you there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and 
As we're reading in the Old Testament, we understand that you are a God of justice. That when you look at sin, you are not indifferent to sin. That you must punish it. You are a good God. You are a just God. And you must punish sin. But Lord, also in the Old Testament, we see in the life of Noah that you demonstrated grace to him and to his family. They were not perfect, but yet you shed your grace on them. And even as you shed your grace on them, you were giving promises along the way and covenants that you would not bring punishment like you had done before. You are a just God, but you're also loving and gracious. But Lord God, I thank you that as we read the New Testament, we realize why you were able to be gracious. It's because that you weren't simply overlooking sin. You can't do that but that you knew that you would lay the sins of everyone who will trust in you. You were laying them on the cross. You were laying them upon your Son, upon Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us, for dying on the cross, for rising from the dead. And Lord Jesus, help us to live like who we are, children of the Father of all creation and and brothers and sisters of the King of all kings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed our time together again today. And once again, let's not make this a monologue. Let's go to the Facebook group page. Or if you don't have Facebook, go to my website at mattsmusings.net. You'll find that in the show notes for this podcast. And underneath... You know, give me some, uh, you know, some, throw some questions out there about the text or share your comments or your reflections. Um, or if there's some way that you believe that we could, I could make this podcast better, please let me know. Just put that, put those comments there under today's uh, podcast, uh, there either on the Facebook group page or my website, and I will be looking forward to that. Can't wait to see you tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye bye.